0: Father, your word promises us that you make all things work together for the good of those who love you. Father, this morning we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your unrelenting goodness toward us. We thank you that you have shown us the fullness of your kindness and mercy through your son, Jesus Christ. The word tells us that every good and perfect gift that we receive comes from you. So Lord, this morning, would we turn our eyes to you It's the source of our goodness. Father, we have nothing good in and of ourselves to bring to the table. We thank you that the fullness of goodness has been made available to us through your son, Jesus. Help us to see his goodness again today. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask now, Lord, that you would use it to speak truth into our hearts. Father, we would not be people who were conformed to the ways of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Father, use your word to shape us and make us more like Jesus. We ask all these things in his name, and everyone said, Amen. Hey, can we just thank our worship team before you have a seat this morning for leading us this morning? Always so grateful for these guys and their heart to serve us. And you can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to Ezra chapter 4. If you are new with us, if you're here with us today for the very first time, uh, the last few weeks we as a church family have been walking through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're going to be picking up in Ezra chapter 4 as we begin our time together today. It was in the summer of 1944 during World War II, the month of June, that the Allied forces launched Operation Overlord is one of the most major large-scale massive assaults that's ever been conducted in military history. And in one day and one night, Allied forces uh, moved across open waters about 50 to 100 miles with 175,000 men, over 50,000 vehicles of different types, over 10,000 aircraft, and over 5,000 different types of ships, ships and landing craft that would go storm the beaches that were occupied in France by Nazi Germany. And this was an effort that did not come without great cost, but uh, the day that we most commonly refer to now as D-Day was a catalyst moment in driving back and crushing the Nazi regime during World War II. And and so much of what went into this operation, which Winston Churchill called the most complicated military operation in all of history, wasn't just the logistical details that went into planning this. Uh, The Allied forces also spent a significant amount of time studying the profile of their enemy. U.S. War Department had issued a report letting them see that there were really several types of German troops that they might encounter. They said some of them are fiercely loyal to the Reich and they have been battle-tested. Some of them had grown over the years battle-weary and had grown very jaded and cynical towards the Reich. Many uh, were young and not very well-trained and inexperienced, but the declaration had gone out from Hitler to all of his forces that it was the responsibility of every man to stand and die in his defenses. So the allies knew that even with all of their manpower, all of their weaponry, they were going to be going up against an enemy that was fierce and determined. It wasn't just enough for them to know what they were doing in the operation. They needed to know who they were going against. And we as followers of Christ, we also have an enemy who's fierce and determined. We as followers of Jesus have a fierce and determined enemy who is seeking to kill and to steal and to destroy from those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. And like the allied forces in World War II, it's not enough for you and I to know what it is we're called to do as followers of Christ. We need to understand who we're going against. So this morning what we're going to do as we look at Ezra chapter 4 is we're going to take a look at our enemy's profile And we're going to see this morning as we open up Ezra chapter 4 that all who walk in obedience to the Lord will face opposition from the enemy. But the promise we get to rest in today is that in the end, the plans of the enemy are going to fail and the promises of God are going to remain. So let's open up together from Ezra chapter 4. We're going to read first here verses 1 through 5. It says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, and King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and brad counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of of Persia. So as we look at our enemy profile today, we see first that our enemy will utilize deceptive tactics. Our enemy will utilize deceptive tactics. The adversary comes in the form of an ally. The, the foe comes in the form of a friendly. He wants to come to us, making us think that he's actually someone else. The adversaries here that we see in verse 1, these refer to uh, the, the returned exiles. They come, they see them rebuilding the temple, and these adversaries are the Samaritans. They were foreigners who had married into the nation of Israel, but they worshipped other gods. They see them building, and they mean to disrupt this task, so they come to them uh, in, the offer, in the form of the offer of help. They claim to be true worshippers. They say that they had been sacrificing since the days of Esarhaddon. He was an Assyrian king who had reigned in the 7th century, and as the Assyrians conquered people, what they would do is they would resettle a land with foreigners from other nations, so it would uh, dilute the culture and the customs of the conquered people, which would weaken them and make it even more difficult for them to rebuild and rebel again against the empire. And 2 Kings 17 does say, There was an Assyrian king who sent a priest into this region to teach them the law of the Lord. But that same passage in 2 Kings 17 also tells us that these people actually worshipped many gods. It's not just that they were worshippers of the God of Israel. They were pluralistic people worshipping many gods. And so uh, right away, the, the people of God, they recognized this. They recognize they claim to be of us, but they're not truly of us. And so uh, they cite the decree that had been made by Cyrus saying, we have permission to rebuild this. This is for exiled peoples. Uh, This does not include you. So they refuse their help and they turn away. And so we see as the people of God return from captivity and as they begin to engage this work of rebuilding the temple, the first temptation God's people face when they return to their homeland is the temptation to compromise. History had taught them that if they were to shake hands, if they were to make partnerships with the surrounding nations, with the pagan peoples, if they were to embrace their customs, if they were to walk in their ways, this would not go well for them. The last time they did this, it sent them to 70 years of exile, and that is still very fresh on their memories. They're like, we are not going back to exile. Not interested in that again. So they recognize this right away. And and as soon as they draw the line in the sand, the true motives start to show. We see that the adversaries start to discourage the work. They start to raise up scribes and legal counsel. They take some form of of legal action against them, trying to prevent them from carrying out the work that they had been empowered to do. Now, you know, this is really just your classic example of you've moved into a new neighborhood. and, And as you're moving in, your next door neighbor starts walking up and he's got a big smile on his face. And he's like, hey, I'd like to help you get settled in. But the reality is homeboy doesn't like where you're putting up your fence and he's already called the HOA. And, and he's coming at you right now, and he's, he's got a, a, a motive that he's putting on display. Hey, we're friends, neighbors, glad to have you here. But internally, he's like, can't stand the guy already. Hasn't even moved in yet, and he's already working against you. He's putting on a totally different front. And as soon as the line is drawn in the sand, we see that their true motives come out. You know, we as followers of Jesus, we face temptation to compromise When the Lord rescues us from captivity, when he brings us out of our sin, he sets us on a new way and a new path. The enemy is constantly working overtime to try and take us to the point of compromise. We see the deceptive tactics on display here. Since their return, the people of God had taken great care to make sure that they didn't fall into compromise. When they came out of bondage and captivity and exile, they brought with them all the temple vessels that had been taken from them prior to the exile. And then as they're reestablishing worship, they're very careful to make sure it's only those from the tribe of Levi who could prove that heritage, who serve as priests because they don't want to have disqualified priests. Last week, we saw that they immediately begin the work of rebuilding the the, the altar and reinstituting the sacrificial system because they want to return to worship before the Lord. Even before they rebuilt the walls of the city, they wanted to rebuild worship because they knew that their true safety was with the Lord. After that, they start to walk in obedience to God's Word. They start to keep, once again, the Jewish calendar. They start to keep the feast. They're walking in obedience to God's Word, and once again, the first temptation they face is to compromise. We face this same temptation as followers of Jesus. We have an enemy who means to deceive us, who wants to come through who wants to pull us away from the new path that the Lord has set us on and the way he typically tries to deceive us is through compromise. You know what we have to understand about our enemy this morning is that when Satan comes to the church, he doesn't check in at first time guest on Sunday morning and say, "Good morning, my name's Lucifer. I'm here to steal, kill and destroy." That's just not how he operates. He wants to come in the form of a friendly. He wants to come in the form of an ally. The New Testament warns us repeatedly over and over again. False teachers, they disguise themselves. They come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They want to look like us. They want to sound like us. And day by day by day, church, you and I face the temptation to compromise. We face the temptation to compromise our morals in accordance with the shifting moral standards of a secular world. We face the temptation to compromise in support of political leaders or immoral policies that contradict the word of God. We face the temptation to compromise even as the body of Christ with other professing Christians. You know, this is always a bit of a fine line to walk, but hey, we as a church, it's always our desire to be about the kingdom. Like We want to be, as best as possible, a big C church. We want to be able to work with any follower of Christ that we can work with, but the bottom line is there's some boundaries that we simply cannot cross. It's important that we as a church, that we have a doctrinal statement, that we know what it says, and, and that we're upholding the significant truths of God's word, the non-negotiable truths that God's displayed for us in his word, because otherwise we can find ourselves in unholy alliances with those who at the forefront look to be wanting to work in unity, but ultimately they just want to work to disrupt our task. We have to be so very careful that we draw these boundaries and that we not compromise in the name of expediency. Would it have been more effective and maybe more efficient to let others join in with the building? Of course it would, but that wasn't the point. The point is that that would have put them in disobedience, that would have put them in opposition to god 's word, so they recognize what 's happening and they abstain from the temptation to compromise now verses six through twenty three is, is where this, this narrative starts to get a little bit interesting, and we talked about this a little bit in week one because uh, Ezra is writing the events of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, after these first, this first sequence of events that we see in Ezra chapters one through four, and so he 's going back later and piecing together the history and what he does in verses six through twenty three is he actually jumps forward in history a little bit during this long period of opposition that they faced, and he, he pulls a couple of letters, one that was written to King Artaxerxes uh, against the Jewish people, and then one that was written from King Artaxerxes halting the work with the Jewish people. What Ezra's doing in this moment, th- this is, these are not letters that were written specifically according to the events of verses 1 through 5, but Ezra puts them here as an example of the type of opposition that they faced. So again, the letters that we read here, it's not specifically related to the narrative in verses one through five, but Ezra inserts them to give us an idea, historically, what was the type of opposition that the Jewish people face? Is everybody following with me on that? So, so again, I, I've done one Star Wars reference in January. We're going to get number two this morning. Uh, Ezra's like the OG Lucas film. okay? There's there's episodes four, five, six, and then one, two, three, then we're going back to seven, eight, and nine, okay? So he's Star Wars people. You got that? Is, you understand there? So we're jumping around a little bit in the narrative. So this is what Happens in verse 6, we see that there's an accusation written against them uh, during the reign of Xerxes. Verse 7 shows us there's an accusation written against them during the reign of Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes. Then verses 8 through 10 list the names of those who were issuing this complaint, and then the content of the letter actually begins in verse 11. So, uh, Ezra 4, let's skip down to verse 11. This is the content of the letter. It says, this is a copy of the letter they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you uh, to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old, that is why this city was laid waste. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So we see of our enemy that our enemy will utilize deceptive tactics. Secondly, we see this morning that our enemy will speak distorted truth. Our enemy will speak distorted truth. In the New Testament, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about how false teachers will come disguised as disciples, and he says in 2 Corinthians 11 that this really should make sense to us because even Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. So again, he means to deceive, he means to distort truth, he means to, to take things out of context in order to preach a different message contrary to what we've heard. If you look in verses six through seven, the, the word accusations there, this is an important word because uh, the Hebrew term for accusation is closely related to the name of Satan. Now if you've studied scripture, you've looked closely at scripture, we know that Satan is known frequently in the Old Testament the New Testament as the great accuser. He accuses, this is the work of the enemy, is to bring accusation against the people of God. So in verse 12, they accuse the people in Jerusalem as being a wicked and rebellious city. This is a wicked and rebellious city, and so what he does, is he starts to piece together this narrative that the people of God once rose up against other empires, and they're just warning their king, say, listen, if you allow this to go on, if you allow this city to be rebuilt, these people aren't going to pay taxes to you, they're going to rebel against you, they're going to rise up against you, they're full of wickedness and deceit, and, and there's just enough from the nation of Israel's history, there's just enough in the archives to where they basically say, hey, go check the receipts. Like, you can go back and you can see these things for yourself. We're just the messengers here. If this happens, you're going to lose this whole region beyond the river. And so they write this as a warning to the king. But the reality is, this was a completely revisionist history of the people of God. The reality is, when you look closely at the nation of Israel's history, is that, yes, there was rebellion and wickedness. But it wasn't against the nations. It was against the Lord. That their rebellion was turning against the Lord. As a matter of fact, the reason they went into exile is because they had been too accommodating of the nations. They had been too friendly with paganism. They had been too friendly with with idol worship and with false gods, and that's the reason why they were punished and sent into captivity. Now, uh, they did enjoy a a strong period of military dominance and prosperity uh, under the reign, for example, of King David and of his son Solomon, but this was a completely revisionist history. It was a selective retelling of their history to form a narrative that would bring them harm. And this is the work that the great accuser does against us today. He selectively takes pieces of our story. And listen, what you need to understand about the enemy today, church, is he only speaks enough truth to condemn you. He loves to remind you of your failure, but never of your forgiveness. He loves to remind you of your sin, but never of your salvation. He loves to remind you that you have been condemned, but not that you have been rescued by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He will only speak enough truth to condemn. And and very frequently, the enemy does this uh, against the church at large as he tries to hinder the advance of the gospel globally. So again, if you go into communist countries today, this is the lie. This is the selective retelling of history from the enemy. Communist uh, regimes, they will tell their people that Christianity is a religion for the weak. It's for those who are weak-minded, it's those uh, who cannot deal with the harsh and difficult realities of this world, and so they have pulled together this narrative, they've created this crutch because they're weak-minded, they're not strong, and they need something to help them stand. When you go into the Middle East, where Christians are under the threat of, of radical Islam, the, the radical Islamic leaders will preach this lie, and the truth they will say, hey, th- this, this Christianity, it's nothing more than a prop for American imperialism. They mean to prop you up just so they can advance against us a Western agenda. And even here today in the West, the lie that the enemy continues to tell, the half-truth the enemy wants to tell is that Christians are intolerant. Christians are, in, are bigoted. Christians are anti-science. Christians are, are out of step. They're out of touch with the modern world, and they're missing uh, what's happening right in front of them. And, and listen, church, here's the problem, is, is that there's just enough truth for each one of those narratives that there's just enough truth. Man, when you look at the history of of the Crusades, you look at a lot of the history of the injustices that have been committed by the church, it's really, really easy from the outside looking in just to make this sweeping generalization and say, look, Christianity spoils everything. It ruins everything, and the enemy means to use this against us. The enemy will, will talk about all of the evils of the church, but you will not hear in the modern narrative how much positive the church has done. When you look at the advances of medicine, when you look at the advances of education, when you look at the advances of, of, of racial issues and of equality and of women's rights, the church has been at the forefront of all of these issues for centuries. I mean, unless you're just going to be completely academically dishonest and ignore entire swaths of history, that's such a lazy criticism to make. Yet the enemy uses this because he knows that it's going to sell. You know, th- This past week, I think, is a really good example of this. I, I think uh, it's very, very fitting in the same week we as a nation we observe the life of martin luther king and then we also observe the sanctity of human life i think it's very very fitting that we do both of these at the same time because right now we've got a political narrative that's divided us that basically tells you you can care about life in the womb or you can care about life out of the womb but not both And to be truly pro-life, to be a true pro-life follower of Jesus according to God's word, listen, I want us to be a church that's excited about fighting against racism, and I want us to be a church that's excited about protecting the life of the unborn. And right now, what the enemy means to do is to get you to pick one side or the other, not realizing that these two things are actually one and the same. When you study the history of racism, when you study the origins of abortion, what you find are two issues that are inextricably linked to one another. And what the enemy wants to do is to divide us, to get us to choose one side of the story or the other, to selectively retell the truth so that we'll stay in our political polarization and not be able to work together to overcome the injustices of our world. This is the work of the enemy. He wants us to tell part of the truth. He wants us to address some of the issues. And we continue to face the temptation to compromise by picking one or the other in the name of political advancement. This is the work of the enemy. He wants to selectively retell the truth. He wants, he wants the world to think that Christians only care about life inside of the womb. When again, when you look at the work of Christians through the centuries, Christians start pro-life centers at almost three times the rate of, of abortion centers. Christians, everywhere you look in the darkest place in this world, they're at the forefront of caring for teen mothers and, and for those who are in crisis pregnancy situations and doing everything that they can for the betterment of the lives of the unborn. Do not buy a bunch of tired, unproven cultural narratives that get people lots of digital pats on the back online, but just fail in reality. And when we hear things like this, we just need to ask ourselves a very simple question. Is this true? Is this true? Because you have to understand the enemy means to deceive by distorting. The truth. He wants to tell half of the narrative, half of the story, so that we will fail in our mission as the people of God. There's a book I want to commend to you this morning by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, it's called uh, Confronting Christianity, and it's a really good book. I've read it actually once a year for the last two years, and uh, it's it's 12 questions, hard questions for the world's largest religion is the subtitle, and, and she deals with a lot of these objections to Christianity in, in her book. She's a brilliant writer, a very well-spoken writer, but also easy to understand, and, and this is what she's written in her book, uh, Confronting Christianity as she addresses this question of whether or not Christianity just pollutes everything. She says, To say that religion is bad for you is like saying drugs are bad for you without distinguishing cocaine from life-saving medication. Values that many of us in the West today consider to be universal and independent of religious thought turn out not to have sprung from the ground during the Enlightenment, but have grown from the gradual spread and influence of Christian beliefs. In order to hinder our advance, Satan will make every single effort to distort the truth and understand we're living in a time when the enemy very much desires for the world to only know half of the truth about the church. He speaks only enough truth to condemn. You you want a very simple way of understanding and discerning the voice of the Lord from the voice of the enemy in your life? Let me give you a really simple baseline this morning. Consistently in the word of God, Satan is known to us as the accuser. And Jesus is known to us as our advocate. And as the accuser, Satan only speaks half of the truth. He reminds you of your failure. He wants you to remember that you're sinful. He wants you to remember that you failed. He wants you to remember that you're broken. He wants you to remember that you're not worthy. He wants you to remember that there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. But he will never tell you the second half of the truth, where Jesus, who is our advocate, He stands as our defense attorney, and day and night he stands before us, between us, before the just judge of the universe, and he is pleading our case. Yes, they have sinned. Yes, they have failed. Yes, they have broken. But through faith in me, they have been made perfect and righteous and clean in the sight of the Lord. That's the voice of the enemy versus the voice of your father. And we, as we listen to these voices in our head, as we we discern even these voices from the word of God, because the enemy wants to use the word of God against us, we have to learn how to discern what is the voice of the advocate versus what is the voice of the accuser. In Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are you when, when, everybody say when, He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, listen, Jesus has promised we will face the opposition of the enemy. He has promised that the enemy will speak lies about us, will speak half-truths, distorted truths about our efforts as the body of Christ. And what is our response in that moment? rejoice and be glad. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. And that's what sustains us in these moments of difficulty. As we face this opposition, as we, we face the lies of a world that does not want the message of the gospel to advance, we can rejoice and be glad because we know that we still have everything we need in Christ, even if we don't have the approval of this world. So when we uh, get into uh, the, the latter half here of chapter 4, We see in verses 17 through 22 that King Artaxerxes now sends his response to this letter. He's heard the words of the people, he's heard the concerns of the people. This is what's gonna happen if you rebuild this. And so King Artaxerxes sends his response and and he makes it abundantly clear that this work needs to stop. He says, Hey, I went and checked the records. And I saw there was just enough from the records to be able to verify this story. And so I don't think it's in the best interest for the city to be rebuilt. So he sends a letter uh, calling for the work to immediately come to a halt. So, there at the very end of chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, it says When the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shemshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of Darius, of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So our enemy will utilize deceptive tactics. Our enemy will speak distorted truth. Third, we see this morning that our enemy will attempt to disrupt our task. He will come to us as an adversary, pretending to be an ally. He will only tell half of the truth. He will distort the narrative to work against us, to frame something against us that can be used for our harm. And he does all of this because he's trying to stop us in our tracks to prevent us from doing what it is that the Lord has called us to do. So the king confirms these details. He orders the work to cease. And then here in verse 24, uh, bringing it back again, uh, Star Wars fans, this is now back where we left off in verse 5. He's now bringing the narrative back to where it was. He's given these two examples. This was later during the opposition, but he gives us those examples to show us that's the type of opposition we were facing. It was opposition from our neighbors. It was opposition from the government. There was uh, every effort that was made to discourage their attempt to fulfill what it was the Lord had called them to do. So he brings it back in verse 24. And all this says that this continued into the reign of Darius. And so if you look at this on the timeline of history, all this caused the work to cease for 16 years years. Sixteen years. Just a couple of paragraphs in our Bible. Can you imagine this for just a moment? These people have been in exile for 70 years. They finally have a king. There's finally a ruler who allows them to go back, who issues a decree, who gives them the freedom, rebuild your city, restore your place of worship, and, and they get off to a great start they rebuild the altar. We see last week, they lay the foundation of the temple. They're walking in obedience to the word of God. And then once again, the work just comes to a screeching halt because of the work of their enemies. Can you imagine how demoralizing this must have been? I mean, that's a long time for the HOA to delay your fence. And listen, I should clarify this morning. We live in a small town. We don't have a fence. We're not planning to put up a fence. I'm not being passive aggressive this morning. Okay. I would, this may apply to somebody in this room. And if that's you, I'm out here doing the Lord's work for you today, right? like HOA, don't be Satan. That's the moral of the story here this morning. We have to understand this is the work of the enemy. He wants to disrupt our task. He wants to get us off mission. He wants to keep us off course. In Matthew 16, when Jesus shares with his disciples that he's getting ready to go to the cross, it's, it's his right-hand man, Peter, who tries to stop this. Peter actually speaks to him. He rebukes him this is right after the Lord had, had, had made this, this declaration over Peter's life. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter takes his new position a little too seriously. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter says, you're not going to do that. And what does Jesus call Peter? He calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're, you're a disruption to me. You're an obstacle to me. You're trying to prevent me from doing the will of the Lord. And this is the work of the enemy. He wants to disrupt he wants to throw down obstacles. He wants to keep us from walking and doing and what the Lord has called us to do during uh, the Allied invasion of of Normandy, uh, the most famous obstacle that the Germans used that were littered all across the shores of uh, the the French beach uh, were known as Czech hedgehogs. Now, you you know uh, what these probably are from pictures. Just think of like a giant steel asterisk that's been placed into the the sands with several uh, heavy steel beams that overlapped on top of each other. And what they were trying to do was make it difficult for the landing craft to come ashore and to drop their doors and for uh, soldiers to step off and then to uh, storm the beach. And while these obstacles obstacles were somewhat effective. In many ways, uh, they actually were used to go against the Germans. They really didn't have the effect that they thought they were going to have in slowing down the attack. And more than that, uh, as soldiers were getting out of uh, the craft that were coming up on the shores, it actually gave them cover to hide from the German fire. And so they were able uh, to maneuver from position to position as they continued to advance forward on the beach. So what the Germans had laid down there as an obstacle actually only served to advance their own destruction. And listen, in the exact same way, the enemy lays obstacles in our lives, wants to derail us from God's plan and from his purposes, but in the end, his plans are going to fail. Everything that he uses against us, every Christian that the enemy martyrs, every person that he puts to death, every, every bit of persecution that he throws our way, church, all of it is only you being used to expedite his own destruction. The purposes and the plans of the Lord are going to fail. The work was delayed for 16 years, but it did resume. We're going to see in the coming weeks, the resolve was there. They completed this project as the Lord had called them to do. And the enemy is going to do everything that he can to advance, but he's going to fail. I want to help you here for just a second this morning. Um, Last week, we were uh, in our community group, and um, someone in our community group, I won't say who, other than say that I'm married to her, um, was making fun of me uh, because uh, my points and my outlines are very frequently alliterated. That's not intentional every single week. Some weeks it happens, some weeks it doesn't, and so uh, I tried very hard this week to not alliterate my points. I really did, uh, but I got into my, stu- <coughs> excuse me, into my study uh, this week, and it happened anyway, um, so I tried, and so they'll make fun of me again later tonight. But I'm going to break my OCD here for just a second. I want you, if you're looking at the worship guide, uh, to look at point number three. I want to help you improve this point a little bit. Point three here says that our enemy will attempt. I want you to circle that word attempt. Our enemy will attempt to disrupt our task. And I want you to add an ellipsis to the end of that, dot, dot, dot. Our enemy will attempt, circle attempt, to disrupt our task, dot, dot, dot. But I want to improve our point here this morning. He will attempt to disrupt our task but church he will fail our enemy will attempt to disrupt our task i want you to say it with me but he will fail his purposes will not prevail his work will not remain he will do everything that he can to disrupt the task but he will fail satan attempted to distract noah from building the ark but he failed Satan attempted to destroy David through his sin with Bathsheba, but he failed. Satan attempted to delay the building of the temple, but he failed. Satan attempted to deter Jesus at the cross, but he failed. His fate was sealed in eternity past, and it is spoken at the very beginning of your Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. After he deceives man and woman into sin, the Lord pronounces his judgment over the enemy, Genesis 3:15. This is known to us as the Proto-UNgelon, the first gospel. It's the first announcement of the gospel in Scripture. And in this announcement, the Lord declared that one day there would come the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and that work church was finished at the cross. The outcome here is not uncertain. The outcome here is not uncertain. The seed of woman has crushed the head of the serpent, and as the Apostle Paul promised the Church of Rome in Romans 16, 20, the day is coming when the God of peace will crush the head of Satan under our feet. This day is coming. The enemy will attempt to to disrupt and to derail our task, but he will fail. So what's our response today? I want to give us a few reflections here for application. What do we do as we study the profile of our enemy? Well, first, this morning, we need to know our objective We need to know the objective. The Allied soldiers spent two years, especially the airborne soldiers, spent over two years preparing for this invasion, preparing for Operation Overlord on D-Day. Two years preparing for this. There was no question when, when those planes took off from the runway, there was no question in their minds about what they were coming to do. They knew the danger that they were going into. They knew what they were about to face. And the reality is they knew that the enemy also knew that they were coming, the, the war was at a point where everybody understood that if the, the Nazi push was going to be pushed back, it was going to require an invasion of France. And so while maybe the specific details weren't always known by the enemy, they knew that this was coming. And they knew that the enemy knew that this was coming, and yet they continued to press forward in their objective. For the people of God, here in Ezra chapter 4, they knew the objective. They knew that their objective was to reclaim their place of worship to rebuild the altar, to return to worship, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of their city. And we'll see in the weeks ahead their resolve in seeing this project through to the end. But church, you and I as well, we have been given a clear objective. And that objective is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples in his name. And the enemy will do everything that he can to disrupt this task. The enemy wants the church focused on a million lesser things. The enemy wants the church to to fill the calendar with a bunch of religious activities that keep us busy and feeling good about ourselves, but doing very, very little to advance the message of hope in this world. The enemy wants to disrupt us. He wants to, to keep us from focusing where we should best be focused on. And last night, uh, we had Saturday nights where we're gathering together as a church family for prayer uh, every Saturday night. If you've not come yet, I'm challenging you, come this Saturday night. Uh, be here for prayer and worship Saturday night, 7 o'clock. And, and what was amazing last night, um, I, I got to see a couple of things overlap. Four years ago, January 22nd, we celebrated our very first worship service uh, as a church family and a public worship service. We'd had about a year of preparation behind the scenes. It was four years ago, January 22nd, first public gathering of Cross Community Church. And, and last night, this is what happened in this room, is there, there were a few folks in this room who came to faith in Christ during those first few months that we were gathering publicly together as a church, and last night they were in here pleading the names of their friends who do not know Christ. And that is why we exist is to preach the message of the gospel so that the lost will be found and then in turn become the found who find the lost. That is why we exist. That is the purpose and the calling of the church. It's not about Taylor Burgess's vision. It's not about Cross Community Church's vision. Our marching orders are given in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you and know that I'm with you always to the end of the age. Listen, you can have your opinions, whatever you think of what church is supposed to be, on the authority of God's word, that is what church is supposed to be. That is what Jesus has called us to do, so we have to know our objective. Second, we need to know our opposition. Know the opposition. Jesus says of Satan in John chapter 8 that he is the father of lies. I love how the NIV translates John eight forty four. 44. It says that when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. This is just what comes naturally to him. Scripture warns us that false teachers are wolves who come in sheep's clothing. He deals in deception. You you think about the wilderness temptation of Jesus. How does Jesus come, or how does Satan come and try to, to deceive Jesus? He uses Scripture. It's probably not a good idea to quote the Word of God to the Word of God. Like, not generally a good idea. Get in a debate with the author of the universe and of Scripture itself. Satan tries it. But his, his, his temptation with Jesus is actually to try to pull pieces of Scripture out of their context, use that truth against them, so he'll walk contrary to the Word of God. This is how the enemy operates. Listen, this is what I know someone in this room is dealing with this morning. You are surrounded by the half-truths of the enemy. Like You come in here this morning, and you have convinced yourself that all it's going to be for you is that you can show up on Sunday morning and you can sit here and just kind of make it through the morning, but you're not qualified to serve. You're not qualified to be involved. You're not qualified to really make a significant impact for the kingdom of God because of sin that's in your past. Because the enemy loves to take bits and pieces of your history and use it to destroy you. He wants to turn against you. He wants to make you think that that failure is permanent. And listen, while there are certainly consequences of our sins, but we can never diminish this. There are consequences of our sins that follow us that might impact how and where we can serve in the same way that the Nazi forces laid down obstacles to try to prevent the advance of the allied forces. Satan is going to lay obstacles. He has laid obstacles in your life, but those obstacles can also become your opportunity to defeat him. You can have a testimony. You can have a story of God's miraculous life change in your heart and your life. And listen, some of the consequences of sin may follow you, but it does not mean that you cannot one day turn around and let your mistakes be the story and the testimony that saves someone else's life. Your story is is what someone else needs to hear to know that they're not alone, that they're not the only one that is experiencing this. And and yeah, while it does require from us a little bit of a self-humiliation, of putting ourselves on display and understanding, man, this is my mistake. These are my brokenness. This is is everything that I've done that's out of step with the word of God. That will be salvation for someone else. And what the enemy used to destroy us can actually be what we use to see others come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have to know the opposition. He will use our past to condemn you. But understand, there is absolutely not a single word of condemnation that is spoken to you by the enemy that it was not crushed by the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Your salvation and your redemption are possible. So we know the objective, we know the opposition, and last, we need to know the outcome. Know the outcome here. The Germans spent over two years preparing the coast of France for this invasion. And it did not change the fact, D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, did not change the fact that by the end of the month of June, just a few weeks later, over 850,000 troops and their equipment, over 148,000 vehicles, over 520,000 tons of supplies were in France. The efforts of the Allies continued to drive forward. Hitler had predicted a thousand-year Reich a thousand-year Reich, and not even one year later, on April 30th, 1945, Hitler took his own life, and one week later, the Germans surrendered. Church, the outcome here is not uncertain. We have the benefit of history not just to tell us how World War II ended, but to show us how our enemy is going to be brought to an end. It was pronounced in eternity past. It was solidified in Genesis 3. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. First Corinthians 15, Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that is what Jesus Christ has done at the cross. At the cross, Jesus put death to death. Jesus destroyed destruction and he put the grave in the grave. That's the work that he's accomplished for us. In John ten ten, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, and that's what he offers to you today. So I just want to encourage you to bow your heads with me here for just a few moments as we close our time here in the Word. Every week during the month of January, we've given this opportunity, and for the next two weeks, we're going to continue to give this opportunity It's a new year and it's always a new opportunity to just to reset, to recalibrate, to just consider our past and then to think hopefully once again about our future. And today I'd be willing to bet that there's some folks who are sitting in this room that some of us are sitting in this room today and you are absolutely crushed by the opposition. You feel pinned down because of your past. You may even feel pinned down because of your present feel paralyzed in your sin, powerless against your sin, listening to the half-truths of the enemy, that you can't be forgiven, that you've fallen too far, that you've done too much. And as a result, you're either sitting on the sidelines as a follower of Jesus who's just resigned to the reality that, hey, this is going to be my life. Or maybe you've convinced yourself as you're just someone who could never be saved. I've fallen too far. I've sinned too much. I failed too miserably. And the hope that you have this morning is that what the enemy means to use to destroy you, God means to use for the advancement of his glory and his kingdom. Jesus Christ will meet you in that brokenness. He will meet you in your sin, and he will not do the work of the accuser to only condemn you. He stands as your advocate between you and the Father to plead night and day for all of eternity your case. To say that you were innocent. To say that you were perfect. To say that you were blameless. To say that you were righteous, and not because of any good that you've done, but because of the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your behalf. And so here in just a second, if if that is you today and you're saying, I feel paralyzed by the opposition today. I want to stand once again in the confidence of knowing that the promises of God will be fulfilled in my life. If that's you this morning, here in just a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to stand up in this room. And we've done this the last couple of weeks. We got to do this two weeks ago again. Last week in our second service, we we had to see such a beautiful picture are just willing to stand and and to receive prayer and to receive encouragement from the body of Christ. And again, we're not doing this because we want to embarrass you, because we want to shame you. We're just doing this because we want to affirm you. We want to celebrate you. We We want you to be able to receive the encouragement, to be reminded of the outcome. This is not permanent. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the power of the enemy can be broken in your life. And you can walk free as a son or a daughter of your heavenly father. So that's you this morning. I'm going to pray here in just a second. In a second, we're going to invite you just to stand up and make that known in this room and receive prayer and encouragement from our prayer team as we celebrate you. So Father, I pray right now for every person sitting in this room, for those who are watching online, who are burdened. God, who feel the weight of sin, the heaviness of it in their lives, Lord who feel paralyzed by the lies of the enemy, who speaks only to condemn them. And I pray now in this moment, Lord, that they would hear your voice of freedom and forgiveness and hope and life and restoration. Would you speak that truth into their hearts or would you bind the enemy away from this place? We declare in faith in the name of Jesus Christ that he is defeated. He has no power in this place and no claim on those who belong to you. So Father, bind him away from this place and let freedom be known in this room this morning.